Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 30, the future of Ultimaker Cura and beyond. Episode 30 brings to a conclusion our Ultimaker Turns 10 celebration within season 3. In the previous episode and this one, we have talked to some of the core team developers and product leads for Ultimaker Cura. Episode 29 was focused on the early years of Ultimaker Cura, and episode 30 focuses on the role of software in toolchains today, new developments in pathing, and its role in combination with other packages such as Marketplace and Digital Factory. Ultimaker is an open source slicing application for 3D printers initially created by David Brom and continually developed by a dedicated team at Ultimaker together with its community. For context, this software package is used by over 1 million users worldwide and has been cited as handling 4 million print jobs every week. Our episode today builds on the foundation of episode 29 to explore the role Ultimaker Cura plays within Ultimaker's wider platform today. We sit down first with Aryan Dirks, product owner, software. And then we add Roger Bergs, product manager, software. And as a special highlight, we will also share a conversation with researcher Tim Kuypers about the Arachna library that aims to introduce new capabilities for slicing into Ultimaker Cura for the benefit of all users. Covering the story of Ultimaker Cura has been the most frequently requested topic for talking additive since our launch last year. And it is with great pleasure that we round out this pair of episodes as a finale to close out season three. Get ready for new approaches and topics when Talking Additive starts season four later this fall. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 30th episode for the Talking Additive Podcast. This is our finale for season three. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of nearly 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. Our first guest today is Aryan Dirks, product owner of Cura and Ultimaker. He joined Ultimaker at the critical stage of Ultimaker's shift to better serve professional and industrial customers and remains a strong champion for everything that Cura does to contribute back to the entire 3D printing ecosystem. To provide an excellent tool that custom machine builders, researchers, and even other 3D printing hardware vendors can use to have success with 3D printers, leveraging a wide range of machine design strategies well beyond those represented by the Ultimaker FFF product portfolio. So my name is Ayn Dirks. I'm the product owner of Cura, which means that I'm responsible for making sure that the work the team picks up is actually worth working on. That means it's uh, necessary because it will bring us new users or because it's important bugs that we need to fix. But sometimes also uh, it's an opportunity to cater a big upcoming customer, potential customer of Ultimaker. So it can be anything from sales, marketing, community, bugs, everything. 
And in my job, it means that, that I have to talk to, of course, customers, users. We have a community manager that I keep close contact to. But we also, of course, have a lot of enthusiastic printers in-house as well that have opinions about what we should add or change or fix because it's a bug they run into every day. Although nobody else ever reported it, it's still a very important bug, of course. Yeah, and I go from the company strategy of what we could all achieve with 3D printing to, yeah, this one little bug and everything in between. Tell me a little bit about your journey. I, I was looking at LinkedIn and I saw this tiny little robot icon, a vacancy. We were looking for a product owner and there was this robot. And I was like, a robot? in the area of Utrecht, what is that? You know, with robot, <laughs> still mechanical engineer, deep inside, click, robot. And and I read all about Ultimaker. I didn't know Ultimaker. I lost touch a bit with 3D printing and I read up on it, of course, and everything fitted together. I love creating software. I think I can do something there. I can make an impact. I like talking to users and to stakeholders to see what's important. So that really fits the product on a role. But now my customers are the mechanical engineers I myself used to be at one point. And I understand, well, at least part of their needs or their worries or, or how they think. I work together with mechanical engineers, my colleagues that create the printers in Geldermalse. It, it all came together in this one little robot icon and the story behind it. So that's how I joined Ultimaker. I also think it really fits with a software engineers' mindsets. Their agility, try to create things fast and then see what the reactions are. And if it fails, you, you change it, you adjust. And of course, that's different with hardware. It takes a long time to, to create injection molds or to get the sourcing from China or from any other part of the world. So the cycle is way longer. And 3D printing really fits with that short iteration cycle, both in a good way, because uh, it fits how I think as a software developer, but it's also the other way around. I'm not an experienced hardware engineer. So if I would have to do that big cycle, I'm prone to make mistakes because I don't do it every day. And software engineers that want to create things, they don't do that every day. So if they start creating things, they will make mistakes. Uh, and those are costly in the pre-3D printing world. And that's the cool thing of 3D printing. People like me who are not the best designers anymore, or maybe never was, still can create things. And if, if it's not that good, you just adjust and print it again. So it's both, it fits our mindset, but it's also actually a solution for one of our problems. And that is not being that good in engineering, but good enough okay. to adjust. You're having maybe a little bit of false modesty, but you're saying that you might let things slip. But actually iterating, moving fast, and and being able to take a look at a state of something and make an assessment and adjustment, isn't that sort of the main point of argument for including 3D printing in new roles? Anyway. Yeah, so, uh, no, I totally agree. And I, I really meant th those ideas in light of how it started, why software engineers are there from the beginning. Because 3D printing was not that useful for mechanical engineers. At the beginning, parts were not strong enough. They were not as good as injection molding, which everybody get. I did a mechanical engineering course of four years in my bachelor degree, and I had zero classes on 3D printing and about uh, a full year uh, in total on injection molding. So that's how mechanical engineers think. And that's why I think the adoption went way faster with software engineers. And right now it's different. Right now we are, as a 3D printing industry, we're on the level that we can make customer-facing parts with 3D printing. We are on the level that, that we can make uh, good plastic parts or metal parts even, and ceramic parts with 3D printing. So yeah, that changed. And I think right now as a mechanical engineer, you should know what it's about 
and make uh, calculated decisions on what production technology do I use for the product I'm creating, and 3D printing should be part of your options. Of course, depending on batch size and everything, but it, the form freedom it also delivers is something that you should keep in the back of your mind. Have you always had a, a leadership role within uh, software in, in guiding Cura? I joined as a product owner, but for the Connect team. So I started with Ultimaker Connect. I worked on that. We had a small team and we were building that, yeah, you could now say first version of the digital factory. And that, that's how I started. There was another product owner working on Cura. From that, I moved to being sort of a product lead within software, trying to figure out where as Ultimaker we should go with our software proposition, which was really fun to do. And I'm still taking part, of course, in those kind of talks. But then at some point, about two years ago, the product owner of Cura left our company. And uh, I was asked, uh, can you step in? Can you pick up the product and the team? Of course, it's a combination. As a product owner, you are responsible for the product, but you're responsible with the full team. So you work with the whole team to get that product to a better state or to, to a better proposition. And I gladly said yes, of course. It's from a software perspective, one of the more interesting products I've, I've ever worked on. It's so diverse. It's widely used all over the world by many different users, different types of users. I've never worked on an open source product before. So that's also interesting. And I really appreciate that. It's something that grows on you, I, I guess you can say. And yeah, it, it worked from there. Of course, the moment I joined Ultimaker, I started printing. So I started using Cura. Uh, and I started having a lot of questions, as you can imagine. I became the product owner and I needed to yeah, really get into Cura, understand the architecture, understand the challenges, understand the different types of users, our needs, and also understand where Ultimaker is going and the challenges we face with, in all honesty, we're moving to different customers. And that mm -hmm. means we have to mix those new customers into the customers that we already have and the users we already have. We always make a bit of a distinction. We have users, everybody uses Cura, and the customers are the people that use Cura while having a Ultimaker printer, which is a nice distinction, right? You, you need both, and, but, but sometimes, especially when we talk about customers, there's this new group of 3D printing, users of 3D printing that is entering the community. They're not as active within the community, but they are very active in printing. And of course, uh, they're part of, of how we as Ultimaker make a living. So yeah, we have to take those uh, into account as well. And that created a new dynamic, which made it even more interesting to be product owner of Cura. Do you have some thoughts about what it means to work on a product that is attempting to serve so many hardware vendors as well as custom projects and that sort of thing? What it means to be building and tuning all of these elements that contribute to outcomes? I think the best word for this is challenging. And I don't mean it in a necessarily uh, a negative way. Actually, our biggest challenge is resources, uh, people that can fix things. We can't do as much as we would like to do. Mm. Um, if we could do everything, it's easy, then we do everything. And, and we get a lot of requests that do make sense. And we want to cater to all these different brands, users actually, to use Cura on their printer, whether it's a cheap or an expensive one, whether it's it's homemade or out of the box, it's fun and, and we think we can make their 3D printing experience better. But unfortunately, we cannot do everything. We don't have unlimited time or people to do everything. That's my job then, to make a decision, what feature requests do we do? Uh, and we have over 300 feature requests on our backlog. 
And then remember, we do defer a lot of them uh, already. So most of them actually don't even end up on our backlog. And still, there's over 300 of them. While we do about four or five every sprint. And we also fix bugs. And we also handle pull requests from our community. We monitor our plugin system. We do many things. But when it comes to feature requests, we only do a few. And it's my job to pick the ones we have to pick. And that's where it becomes hard. And we try to do things that are beneficial for all users or for most users. Of course, that are also beneficial for for customers, for Ultimaker, maybe people with an Ultimaker printer. And making sure that there's no issues on printers. So if there's a lot of users from a certain brand that have issues because our direct drive system wouldn't work, for example, or if you have five cores, it wouldn't work or something like that. Then we try to take those away, right? So what we really focus on is take away barriers to use our product for specific groups of people. And if we add features, I would like to add features that benefit most of them. While in the end, and that's in the back of my head, of course, it's not as black as white with every story, but I also I always take the, the benefits for Ultimaker as a company into account as well, of course. And you can see that over the past few months, we've worked on some features that were really focused on the Ultimaker platform. And because we're building that platform, we, we think there's a future in there, uh, a future with a spot for us as Ultimaker in there. And we want to yeah, claim that spot, start claiming that spot now. That means we have to move a bit faster. So I, I'm spending more time, uh, more development time, on, on features that benefit that platform. That's right now. But in the near future, that's already changing. And the next Cura version will be less focused on that Ultimaker platform and more on features that benefit everybody. Uh, and of course, in the past, the whole Cura product is built, taken into account that it should benefit the whole community. It's really hard to summarize that challenge, actually. But that is sort of where, where it all comes down to. You want to cater as many people as possible while keeping Ultimaker in the back of mind. We are an organization, a commercial organization, and making sure that there are no big barriers for new groups or existing groups to use our products. And of course, with barriers, bugs, or missing features that really not allows them to print. I think you, you brought up something that really, really resonates, the, that you have to approach all the richness of what you might do uh, with limited resources and, and manage those. W would you be willing to share some details? Generally, what is the size of the team? So the Cura team consists uh, of approximately 12 people. Right now, we have six developers. So that means uh, people that actually program code uh, and do other things as well, of course, but developers. We have two uh, QA engineers. QA means quality assurance testers. Uh, so those are the people that, that test all those different settings that all come together in Cura. For every version, we make sure and every story we add, bug we fix, it gets tested, of course. So we have two, uh, two of those. We have a designer, but we also have a scrum master and a technical community manager to help us improve both the community and us. Uh, of course, we have an architect, James, and I always say we have the Cura as a team or the Cura family, and we have an extended family because Cura is in itself a product right now, but there, there are a few people in R&D, people that are busy with materials, the people that are talking together with our application engineers to our customers. We have a tester that is really focused on making sure that whatever we do in Cura if you actually print it, so if you take it from the digital realm, that's Cura, into the physical realm, that's, you know, a printer, things might happen there as well. Digital and, and, and physical are not always the same. So we have a person that is dedicated to make sure that if you actually print, 
and you there's an outcome on the printer that that's actually what you expected it to be so that extended family is even bigger there's i think you can say on a daily base there there are about 15 people within ultimaker working with very close to the product of cura to try to improve it or guarantee its quality that's that's really helpful i was there when we were really still selling printers to the community with the um2 and um2 plus those were really actively sold uh, they were still expensive but they were affordable to people that are really enthusiastic and yeah we were starting to to get to know organization that wanted to to buy the um3 and were later really enthusiastic about the s5 of course when i hear harma and i hear martijn about how it used to be i recognize that i started within an r&d organization that was still that and of course we're now a bit more mature we are a bit more professional as an organization we have changed of course I would say, but I'm happy to have seen that old style. Can you define for listeners what Ultimaker Cura is as a product, given that you are the, the product lead of it, and and how it connects into the full platform of Ultimaker, uh, software proposition as well as hardware materials, et cetera? I always try to explain Cura as a tool that transition additional design that someone created somewhere, whether it's from Thingiverse or from your own particular cut system or even maybe an application like Blender, it transitions the digital design into a toolpath for a printer to print. And in that essence, translate what you envisioned digitally into something that can be printed. Of course, it's way more complex than that. We do a lot of things to make that happen, but in the end, it comes down to that, I think. You have a digital design, you put it in Cura, and the output is something that can be printed. That's very clear. And I want to add, we can now also, of course, open cut files with a new plugin we've just created and, and launched. And I think that's a very uh, important bridge. Traditionally, you had a cut com system, right? When you did all kind of mechanical, when you tried to produce a part, uh, whether it was with a CNC machine or uh, some other technology you used, you... You created something, you designed something in cut, and then you prepare it to be tooled, created in your COM system. And, and then you're there, then you send it to the machine and it goes. And what the big difference is between 3D printing and the traditional setup is that you create a design in your cut system, but the way you print it, so the step in Cura does have a lot of impact on how you can use the end part and the orientation how the layers are of course uh, uh, laid the direction of the layers they have an impact on the strength of the part what material you use of course but also your wall thickness your infill how do you deal with support how do you deal with adhesion which is not really part of the part of course but that is how, uh, it part of the, the the things you need to actually print something so it's more supporting the the print process than actually your end part. But yeah, for example, we have many different kinds of infills and they all have their own characteristics and ideas and goals. Um, so in that traditional COM process, you created what was designed. You try to recreate that. And within Cura, those steps do really have an impact on the end part. And I think that's the big difference. And that's also why there's either this very short summary that I gave where you transition a digital design into something where a printer can actually print it. And if you go deeper, then it's a very broad process because there are so many choices that you have to make. The choices that are not only depending on your printer, on the material you use, 
on the intent you have with the part. Uh, should it be flexible or strong? Should it? Do you want it fast or do you have time and do you want it to be uh, visually very appealing? But there's even, what does your part look like? Uh, do you need support? What kind of support do you need? Is it a very organic shape or are there all straight lines there? So all these different aspects make it very complex uh, to get a good result. And that's why with 3D printing, there's this holy grail, the first time right, and that's why it's so hard to get there. And there's ways to do that without catering to everybody's needs. If you, if you take away the opportunity to change things, of course, then it becomes easier to do it right uh, the first time. But then, of course, with, with Cura, we want to have a, a toolbox where people have opportunities to make those decisions. And sometimes people want that because they're real champions and sometimes people need that because they have they have a home built printer and we even know examples of, of people that are living in in areas where there's a uh, cold winters and hot summers they have different profiles for the season so those people do want to be able to tweak everything that's why yeah there's either a very short explanation of what cure is or you go in and then there's all these variables that have impact on your end result that every time we start to scratch underneath a very simple explanation. All these other things come out. We didn't cover one thing that Cura also is. And you started talking about it, but we haven't discussed that yet. Because Cura is primarily what people call in the world a slicer. We do way more than just slicing, of course. But for us, it's also our gateway, our touch point for the Ultimaker platform. And that, of course, is for Ultimaker and people with an Ultimaker printer, quite important. And I think it tries to fulfill those two goals together. And that's sometimes hard, sometimes makes it very interesting yeah, because we can add more very nice features to Cura and sometimes of course you have to take things into account how do you deal with the fact that we really want to build this platform because we believe there's a there's a very good future for it while not right now not everybody can benefit from that platform because it's right now really focused on Ultimaker printers with Ultimaker materials for a good reason so that mixture is interesting but there's a very big group of users that see Cura as their print preparation step and there's a, a very big group of Ultimaker customers that see Cura as their first point of contact with the Ultimaker platform. And for us, that's one of the big challenges to, to keep both involved and keep adding value for both types of users. What is the Ultimaker platform? What does that mean and what's included inside that? Our Ultimaker platform is a combination of preparing your print and printing it in materials where it all comes together but then combining that by enabling engineers to work together and organizations to make sure that their engineers can work together, even if they're not on the same site, but maybe they're on different countries, even different continents. And they can all work together. They can all use their Ultimaker 3D printer with their Ultimaker materials or our third-party materials. And it all comes together in that, that one platform. So that's where you store your files where you store your prepared print jobs and where you connect them to your printers and your users and they can all use that total solution. I think for now that is what we're building as our 3D printing platform and in the future well you can envision way more things there and you already see that right now with our plugin system for example with Teton where we have solutions that help engineers to create a better part and we're also discussing with our material partners how can we make better use of the materials you're providing by not just putting a profile in but what can we do what can we do differently 
either in Cura or in our platform, to allow our users to have better results there, to make better use of those products, not only by just having a good profile there, but also by explaining to them how should you use it, in what way should you use it, but maybe even more, how can you do post-processing? All those things, I think, come together in that Ultimaker platform. Within that Ultimaker platform, Ultimaker's been talking about the the cloud solutions a lot recently. Now, you entered Ultimaker working on the Connect products that, that preceded it. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it means that Ultimaker offers these cloud solutions and how they connect into Cura and include Cura? Yes. So we're hooking Cura up to our cloud solutions where it makes sense. That means that sending prints to a printer via the cloud, of course, you can do that from Cura. Storing your files in the digital factory uh, right now is quite easy. But also our marketplace, which allows for way better search of plugins or materials and discovery of those two things, and then making it really easy to install them in Cura. Those are all examples of where we as Cura, with our desktop application, try to make use of that cloud solution. And I think, of course, people think that the cloud is a solution for everything, which I don't necessarily think it is. But for us, it makes it really easy to connect things together. We have quite a simple printer, right? From a computer perspective, a printer is simple. So we started with Connect on that printer, and it works. But if you really want to scale, if you want to make sure that organizations with several different sites can actually talk together, uh, talk to each other, it is far more easy to do that via a cloud solution than having all these printers as some kind of mesh network talking to each other, especially with the existing printers we have. So that's why we decided to, to put a bit more effort into our cloud solution. And in all honesty, it's also safer from many perspectives. We have designed our solutions, both Cura and our printers, to be open to the level that you can actually say they're hackable. They're open for a good reason. Users can really make full benefit of all opportunities they, they offer. But if you turn it around and you're an organization that wanted to be secure, you want to be sure that there's no plugin installed with malicious software. You want to make sure that nobody is tampering with your printers in a way that, well, you might not agree with. Then it, for us, it's easier to do that via the cloud because that's a place that we control, where we have full control and, and therefore f and also full knowledge of those printers. That makes it way easier for us to help organizations to be more secure, more certain of their setup. How do people external to the Cura team contribute? You have, you have users on GitHub, material partners, a whole bunch of folks. How does that work? We have many different types of contributors and uh, they are all important for what Cura. To start with, we're an open source application that's available on GitHub. You can get to us, you can contact us there and you can, well, download Cura and, and read the full source code if you want, use it. Remember to check our license. We have different types of contributors. We have people that report bugs and we have people that report feature requests. Of course, that's already the first part of what a contribution is, right? It's, especially the bugs are really important for us. And then we have people that provide us profiles for their own or other party other brands of printers. Uh, so that just help themselves and other people to use uh, specific types of printers or brands of printers. So that's why there are so many brands in Cura 
and printer types to be used is not because we've added them, the community has added them. But there's also community members that actually do pull requests. So pull requests are, they propose code changes to us and we check those code changes. It can be a bug fix, it can be a feature request, it can be an addition of something, for example, another type of infill. And we check those, we see if they're properly coded, we see if they actually work, we might have a question one or two, and but then in the end, we accept that pull request, we merge it in, and then in the next version of Cura, that piece of code contributed by, by anybody is then shared to all users. So that's th those are the real contributors to Cura and our the, the real application. So that's sort of like our, our Git community, you could say. We also, of course, have contributors in material profiles, uh, the third-party material profiles uh, we work with as Ultimaker. You can download those in the marketplace. And we have a lot of plugin providers. And we have professional plugin providers like Teton that I mentioned earlier. But we also have community members that create plugins. The settings guide is of course contributed by, by one of our community members, also working for the Cura team, but it is done in his own time as a hobby, a side project, and is used by many uh, users already, and, and even more should start using it, I'm convinced. But th those are also contributions to our total platform. And I think those are the most visible contributors to, to what Cura is, those five different types. And then we have of course, also sometimes professional organizations or professional uh, give or take or that, that do a branch of Cura, uh, that branch of which is allowed in our license and create their own build of Cura. They create features and we might be able to pull those features back into Cura. Do you want to point talking out of listeners who might be interested in, in joining the developer community at various resources to, to find out what the current state of things is? Yeah, please go to our GitHub repository of Cura, where we explain everything. It is really focused on developers, so you need to know something of code. But you can go to our kit, GitHub repository, and we have forms there for bug reports, feature requests, and of course, manuals on how you can um, build your own Cura locally and work with the code and do a PR. Everything is described there in our wiki pages. And also, I just wanted to mention that if you're interested in taking advantage of resources like the the APIs that kind of connect into all this, you can go to the developers corner at ultimaker.com. It's very good that you pointed out. If you want to make uh, use of our cloud APIs, then go to ultimaker.com and we'll tell you all about how to use those APIs there. Yeah, and you can find it under Ultimaker support. Developers corner is a breakout section. Excellent, and in there is an Ultimaker Cura software development kit, which you also would find uh, if you went to GitHub and, and saw the, the resources yes. the Cura wiki. Great. Thanks again to Aryan. Next up is Roger Bergs, Product Manager of Software within Ultimaker, with a focus on the vision and roadmap for all of Ultimaker's applications outside of the embedded software on the machines themselves. In this capacity, he is also a strong champion of Ultimaker's platform strategy and puts in a lot of his time fostering and deepening relationships with third-party software companies who are partnering with Ultimaker or making use of its extensive cloud and hardware APIs. Roger, thank you so much for joining Talking Out of today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. I'd like to join. <laughs> so I'm uh, Roger Bergs. I'm the product manager of software within Ultimaker. And in that role, I'm responsible for the vision and the roadmap of all our application software, so to say. So that's everything outside of the machine in order to get a good print on the machine and to manage your uh, printers. So that would be Cura, it would be the Ultimaker Digital Factory, it would be the marketplace, the whole platform ecosystem in software 
outside of our machines. What was your first encounter with 3D printing? It was hearing from it because Tom Nagel was an old co colleague of mine in Oostsee in Venna and he was also my old neighbor. So and he at a certain point said that he uh, was going to leave the company to work for this uh, 3D printing startup company called Ultimaker, which was still very small in that day. So that was the first time that I ever heard about that. I, I was a product manager in software in another company. And I was approached by another old colleague of mine and they said, hey, we're looking for this product manager for Ultimaker. And yeah, and then he really started telling about Cura and I was really amazed to hear the sheer size of, of the usage of that tool and, and that it was so worldwide, widely used and, and that they had this very interesting question on, hey, here's the thing, it's the most used slicer in the world. But it's open source. We spend an awful lot of effort in it to keep it up and running, but we don't earn any money with software. And in those days, I learned, because that was exactly what happened in, in OSE. I was also in the software area. And I really saw that, hey, if software don't bring in any money, at least not on paper, then people just tend to forget that it's there and, and also tend to not invest in it. While at the same time, it's really crucial for our total offering. So that this is an interesting assignment. Let me jump into that. And yeah, let me go and talk to, to some people. And I really like the culture. I like the atmosphere. So this is really something that I would, uh, yeah, would like to, to pick up and, and, and do as an extra job. So that's how I got in. And that was really the first time that I ever heard about Cura. Uh, but uh, I quickly learned. <laughs> what I really like most in the product management role is thinking ahead, thinking with a vision and developing a strategy that leads to a certain vision. And in uh, my previous job, I was really occupied by just operational stuff and things that everybody messed up in support and whatever. And I, that's not giving me any energy. So that really was the pitch that got me into it and got me thinking and just yeah, hearing more about it, it, it got me more and more enthusiastic. And then I watched that uh, on, on Netflix, I watched Printing the Legend. Well, you know everything about that one, but really that even got me more fascinated as in, hey, there's so much more to it than just developing a technology, but getting a company running, getting a successful strategy out, that's, there are so much more elements that come into play. So yeah, I thought, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> Share your off-the-cuff thoughts about what Ultimaker was when you decided to join. Ultimaker just came out of a phase of really rapid growth. And I think I joined in my month with 15 other, other new colleagues. So it was really the, the, the period where most of the people that you were talking to were, would only work there, have worked there for a couple of months. If you run into somebody, hey, how long do you work here? Well, I work here three months, the other one two months. And occasionally you run into somebody that worked two years and that was really long. <laughs> so it, it was really, I think more than half of the company just entered within the last year. It was really a fascinating time because it it was this company that, yeah, they didn't know what happened to them almost. It, it, it was not that it did, that there was this really specific strategy that they had that they executed upon and that uh, where they said, we are going to grow like this. It, it just happened to them because they just happened to make the right decisions in the past. And, and I think that's fascinating because that also can can tell you a lot about what future opportunities you have to be successful. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about doing a textbook strategy, but it's also really knowing about is this company good and what, what are they capable of? So what are what are the things, what are the, the competences that this company has that they probably are not, maybe are not even aware that they have them, 
but that can be a recipe for future success. And I think that was one of the most fascinating things that I that I saw when I came in. And it's still, I think that's still what our biggest challenge is today. We don't have any lack of ideas. Uh, we always have 10 times more ideas that we can do, but really picking the ones that fit us best. I think that's where the discussion should be about. And that's what, what can help us propel into next uh, successful uh, stages. When a lot of people look at Ultimaker from the outside, they think about Ultimaker as providing hardware. But even in the context of the hardware, itself, there is software, and, and there are other roles for software in the company that have been increasing since you joined. Would you please detail for us the roles of software at Ultimaker? It really started with Cura. So Cura is still our, our biggest asset in terms of software. So in terms of user base, I think only 5% of the usage of Cura comes from Ultimaker users. So 95% of all Cura usage is just people using other printers. And that's fascinating in itself because they all use Ultimaker, but they're not one of our customers other than that they download our software. So also learning what you then can do with that. I think that's still a debate we have on a daily basis because, well, also seeing that documentary of printing the legend, closing things down is not the option. There's this whole community out there that, that made Ultimaker and made Cura where it is today. And they earn as many rights to the whole intellectual property of Cura as Ultimaker does. And yes, of course, in the last few years, the balance shifted to Ultimaker developing a lot of things for Cura, but still the basics, they're not Ultimaker's intellectual property, they're that of the community. So that's, I still think that that, that is one of the most important things to keep in the back of our mind. So that's our legacy that we always have to respect. But then on the other hand, it's really about, okay, but if we want to bring software to the next level, then we, we, we have to develop additional things. And also, if you take a look at the more professional customers that we have today, yeah, they expect a certain level of quality. They expect a certain level of support and some continuous developments as well. And yeah, that's, that should be a paid model. That doesn't fit a free open source type of thing. When we started to next to Cura, also develop this whole cloud proposition and yeah, what we now call the digital factory. That's when we decided to move that whole feature of printer management and print job management to the cloud, <coughs> which is branded as Ultimaker Digital Factory, which is our, uh, our other software component. And the third one is yeah, the Ultimaker Marketplace, which is actually the landing space for our ecosystem. So it's where all our partners can offer their add-ons for our platform, be it material partners or plugin writers or the recent addition that we had uh, integrations with the digital factory. We also recently launched uh, three subscription plans. If you're just a home user and you're using Cura, we're fine. We stimulate that. We as Ultimaker, one of our purposes is that we help the world's uh, transitioning towards uh, distributed manufacturing and that is also by stimulating home users to just use our software so please do please go ahead we don't want any money from you just if you want give us your feedback also always very welcome but that's our offering to to the community for professional users we think really there's value if we can help professional users in managing and organizing their 3d printing infrastructure in an organization if, if you just have one person in a company sitting with one printer and managing everything yourself, that's fine. But as soon as you start scaling out multiple printers in your organization, you have multiple materials you work with, multiple users that share a machine, there's some level of organization that, that you want. And this is what we said, okay, this is actually the point where we think we need to add value in a, a special offering 
for, for professional organizations. And that's why we launched three plans, which is Ultimaker Essentials, Ultimaker Professional, and Ultimaker Excellence. And Essentials is really our basic offering. It's feature-wise, it's exactly the same like the free offering. So it's also, that's why we also make it available for free if you buy a printer. It's just the same features as the open offering, but then translated to an enterprise level. If you take a look at our open offering, we never took into account that the basic security requirements of a company. It doesn't mean that it's not secure, but it means that we put full control in the owner of Cura. And that's something that an IT department doesn't want if that software runs on a company laptop. So we made some provisions that if you install Cura, the enterprise version of Cura, that you're just not able to just install any plugin that you download from somewhere, but we can make sure that you can only work with plugins that are verified by us and those kinds of things. Also, the ability to firewall your printer so that nobody can just access it on the local network if they know the IP address. Those are things you don't need and you don't want in a home environment, but they're really essential in a company environment. So that's all these type of features combined with also a, a direct uh, support channel. That's what we then bundled as being Ultimaker Essentials. And then the next level of subscription is really about this scaling out phase. So any company that grows beyond two or three printers and two or three users and it scales out gets a need for better fleet management, user management, parts management. And that's what we all offer in Ultimaker Professional. And when you even go one step further and say, hey, I'm a very big company and I just don't want something out of the box. I need it customized. I need it integrated with my own enterprise system. I need some additional support in that. That's what we, that's what we bundle as the excellent subscription. And that is basically the same software features, but with, with access to our APIs and some, some additional export and support features. Thank you for, for going through that. Based on your research and, and steps to, to try to solve and address these elements, why do you think that having more sophisticated software is a big deal when uh, a company has more than one printer and more than one user? So going back to what I said before is that if you look at how did Ultimaker become successful, it was because we did a key thing different than all the other companies. And that is that we soon realized that if you want to sell a machine to a company, that's not the audience that is willing to open a box and first start two days of constructing and tinkering and even printing out uh, all the parts before they're actually ready to start printing. They want to take this out of the box and immediately hit the, the play button and, and go. And I think it's this level of support that you also want on a software level. So we solve that part of the puzzle. If you have your print file ready, then we have a machine that is able to do this very reliably without any tinkering or without any additional setup. You just load your material and you, you fire your uh, G-code file, you upload it, it does its job. You don't have to worry about anything. But if you take a look at the whole software workflow before, that's still really well, it's really a tinkering process. And today's users don't mind because they're all engineers. They know how to handle a CAD system. They also like it to play around with Cura and with all the settings and, and to, because it also helps them understand the process a little bit better and, and, and gets them with inspirational with new ideas. 
But I think now we also end up in a phase where we get a whole level of new customers that are more, I would classify more as casual users. They're not really interested to really understand all the details of the software or of the process. They just say, hey, I have this part here and I want to have it printed and I want to see on which printer is available to do that or that I have access to. That part, we can really reduce a lot of steps and and help the user do this stuff. That's really our biggest goal that we have now with with the whole software stack is bring it up to that level. Would you define what the Ultimaker ecosystem is from a software perspective? The Ultimaker ecosystem is everything that all third parties add to our platform. We come from an open source community, so we're always this open brand. And we really have this belief that if you allow people to collaborate, if you're opening up for collaboration, then you really stimulate new stuff and innovation. So it's, that's really also a core fundament of our strategy is that we have this open system where others can just get access and, and yeah, build integrations with. And so if you take a look at our, our machines, those APIs are directly accessible. For the cloud APIs, we also make that available to any, everybody that wants that. But yeah, we also want to make sure that they're that security-wise, we do that correctly. So in that case, we ask you to really get into contact with us and uh, tell us what you want to do before we provide the credentials to to uh, to integrate with our cloud API. But yeah, anybody that has a good pitch and a good story that that has something to add to the whole uh, platform, they're welcome to integrate with us. You can just innovate much faster if you don't build everything yourself, but you allow others to create their own specialism and then develop on that. It's really the pace of innovation that is that you can achieve when you involve others. And the other one has to do with the fact that, that there are so many cases for 3D printing that there is not just this single workflow that fits. If we would do that, we would really limit us, ourselves to a very specific customer group for 3D printing. But we don't want that. Huh? So we also have this whole material system. It's still so much in its early stages that we just want to put it in the hands of everybody. But that means that it also should fit the workflow of everybody. And for us, it's simply not possible to support all these workflows and build specific integrations for all these different design programs or, or what, what have you, device management programs that people want to work with or ERP systems or PLM systems that we have to tap into. So that is typically something where we say, hey, this is not our domain. This is something for, for a community to take on. So if we have an ecosystem, we can, we can cater to all those needs without us having to develop that, that, that all. So that's, I think those are the two most important arguments to really go for this ecosystem. What are some of the companies that have integrated with uh, the Ultimaker ecosystem so far? Yeah, so one of the, the earliest ones is, is Titan Sim. You did, a, you did an episode with, uh, with Doug on, uh, on it. So we spoke to them when they were just having their first idea and they, they came to us and said, hey, we have this idea for Cura. And then, yeah, we really got enthusiastic and said, let's do this. And, and we really helped them and we... We, we grew them. Now, of course, uh, Fusion 360 with Autodesk, we have made the whole flow from CAT to Cura and, and to our, our platform better and smoother. Uh, we're also talking to Siemens uh, at the moment because they created an integration directly with Cura and Siemens NX. There are these CAT players that are now entering our ecosystem. But it's also really the smaller startups with great ideas like Kasser, for example. It's an Israeli-based company that that 
specialize in part identification. So they have this algorithm where they search through your whole database of parts to see whether or not that part would be suitable for 3D printing and whether you could create a business case when you switch from traditional fabrication to 3D printing. And recently, we also talked to a British startup called Additive Flow. They have a really nice design optimization tool with a lot of simulation and a lot of nice automation in there to really optimize a given part to make it better suitable for 3D printing or to make to make it better suitable for multi-material characteristics. Trinkle, they, they are a design or CAD system, but a specialized one because they want to take away the need to learn a whole system like CAD. So to, they parameterize the whole design of tools and jigs and fixtures and they really make it easy with with a few clicks of a button to design a, a tool and a jigsaw fixture. I have another one which is really interesting. They visited us last uh, Thursday. It was Involon. It's a Spanish company which specializes in, in augmented reality and using augmented to teach people how to use a machine or how to maintain a machine. And they created this awesome demo with the Ultimaker S5. And yeah, all those examples together, it, I can go on for, for days. And every week I get a new company that is reaching out and say, hey, we have this fantastic idea. And I, yeah, I really love to see that that, uh, that energy coming in. I think we just started with this uh, ecosystem. And I think there's a lot more potential uh, that we can get out of. Look forward to seeing all the, all the new ones flowing in all the time. What do you think sets Cura apart from some of the other slicers and 3D control software packages? Oh, that's a good question. <clears throat> I think it's it it's comes down to the fact that Cura is really designed by people that are 3D printing enthusiasts from the get-go. So I think if you would go into our company, the people that know most about the 3D printing process, you won't find them in the hardware team. You will find them in the Cura team. So they know every bit and every detail of 3D printing. And that shows in, in the solutions they provide and the things that the, they come up with. And not only that they come up with, but also that the open source community comes up with. But they have the ability to very quickly see when there are these pull requests coming in for the software, which one are really valid and which one are yeah nice to have or uh, need, need less attention. So I think... Really, the quality of the people working on it, that's one of the things that, that, that set it apart. And yeah, it, with any system that is used a lot, uh, the more people use it, the more feedback you can get and the more, uh, the more things you can do to improve it. So I think also just having this really large customer base, that also helps uh, driving uh, Cura uh, into the right directions. So I think those two combined uh, will just give you one of the best slices in the world. I think I want to make one remark more about what sets Cura apart and where the value of Cura Great. is. Because I think one of the bigger strengths of Cura is also the whole setup that we have with profiles. Because print profiles, they help you make the right choices and get the right print out of it. So it's not... It's not the slicer that... It's because the slicer has so many options that you can get the best print out of it. It's really knowing what settings to, to pull or to push when you want to make a, a print. And I think that's one of the things that also few people know. So the fact that within Cura, you don't have to think about it, but just say, I, I use this material, I use this printer, and I, I want to have a part with this resolution. And then everything else is already pre-filled for you. And, you. and maybe you only need to make some small tweaks. 
I think that is really what, what also helped driving the adoption of Cura. And I think it's really important that we keep on doing that and keep making that easier. Because as I was explaining in the beginning, it's really a translation from an intent that a user has to, to all this machine code. And people forget that when they complain about the quality of the printer, it might not be so much about the quality of the printer, but really about the, the quality of the print file that they send to it. So that's really why it's so important that we keep on developing these profiles and we keep on helping users to make the right choices for settings. I think that's also a very important aspect of what we do with Cure. That makes perfect sense. And talking in particular to engineering teams and, and companies, when they pick up 3D printing and initially maybe they just see it in, in the kind of old mode of rapid prototyping and you know, and what are a couple of the base printing materials. And they can get pretty far with that. But the second they realize, oh, I can use this for a functional tool, in the past that meant could be weeks of characterizing and, and validating profiles for using new material. It's, it's still challenging if you don't get help, but Ultimaker yeah. gives so much help. Yeah. And let's not forget people, especially people that, that did it already a couple of years ago, they, they sometimes just tend to make mistakes because they, they don't know we evolved. So people start changing layer heights while, while the whole profile is, is not set for that layer height. And they, they're actually dumbing down on their, on, their, on their print quality without knowing it. So that's really, I think that's one of the next steps that we have to take. How can we also prevent you from making these, these mistakes. And I think the, the main solution for that is just make sure that the profiles that you choose are so perfect that you don't need to dive into to, to details to adopt them. I think that's particularly key. There's so much that's counterintuitive about those profiles. They were the ones that those of us who have been here since the beginning of desktop, you were used to like, oh yeah, you go in there, you, you're going you're gonna to fuss with this. I can play with my attractions and get what I want. But yeah. Then when you work with the actual polymer companies and their material scientists are sitting there and they're like, actually, the way this polymer behaves, you don't want to do that. You want to put your attention here, there, there. And and they contribute that. And yeah. it's night and day. It's night and day. Yeah, exactly. Can you talk about the rise of digital factory and, and how the cloud solutions now with the subscription packages change the behavior of using the machine? The digital factory serves a couple of things so one is of course printer management and yes it, it's that's just an evaluate evolution of the things we did with ultimaker connect on the machine so it's really going into the machine getting the status getting error codes getting being able to update the firmware seeing the job history those kind of things um, then what we try to do with the digital factory is take it one step further and say hey but if you don't have a single printer but you have a fleet of printers you there you want to manage some of these things on the fleet scale rather than on an individual printer scale like for example uh, log files or reports you want to download that for your whole fleet you would have a page with the status overview of all the printers in your fleet so that you can immediately see which ones need attention or which ones are ready and and, and should be emptied so that is really about uh, taking that to a fleet management level then the other thing that we added in Digital Factory is, is managing your colleagues and your users, especially in an organization. You want to have a little bit more control about who has access to, to what printers. So if you have a couple of printers, you might want to reserve one of the printers really for some high-end stuff or some exotic materials and, and save the other ones for the, the PLA stuff that the average user wants to do. But then you also want to make sure that the average user only uses that one 
machine that you reserved for him or her and not the one that you just have set up perfectly for this carbon filled uh, composite that you want to experiment with. So by organizing all your users and giving them access to certain printers or revoking access to certain printers, that's another aspect of the digital factory. And the last one, and that's what we launched in, in last April, is the digital library. And we started out this digital library as what all other players are doing. Hey, let's make this library of parts because then you have a catalog of parts and then people immediately start printing parts. And we were discussing this with customers and we were really finding out, okay, what are then the needs that you have for this library of parts? And really what we learned in, in that study was that the difficult thing was not so much that once you have all these parts to share those among the organization, but it's, it's getting to that really perfect part. That is the point where things go wrong because that's where you need a couple of iterations, you need help from others. And that's all something that is, is just not facilitated at the moment. And it's also a process that is very poorly documented in practice. So what you typically would see is that people start complaining that, hey, before I have this perfect part, I need to make 10 iterations to achieve that. But the problem is that then when they were working with iteration number eight, they probably are redoing things that they already found out that didn't work in iteration number three. But yeah, somebody just forgot to write that down or, or, or note that. So you're just reinventing the wheel and then somebody else takes over. But yeah, he starts all over again from scratch. So that's where we said, okay, this is what this library should be about. And that's exactly the stage where our customers are in. So that's what it should facilitate. It should facilitate this whole co collaboration and learning aspect. So you have a couple of people in the company that know perfectly what to do, and you have these other people that still need to learn. So why not share stuff of, the, of people that know what they have been doing, share that with the people that just need to get started so that they, they don't have to start from scratch, but also that they have an easy tool to reach out for this expert to say, hey, I, I tried this. Can you have a look at this? Because I tried to print this, but it isn't working. And then the expert can go in and then see, hey, the, the file is there with all the settings. They can inspect and say, hey, you made these and these mistakes. You, if you just switch it like this, it should be fine. And this is the kind of collaboration that we try to facilitate with the whole uh, digital library. Looking at the recent disruption and the evolving workplace even now, how do you think that 3D printers may be used with the addition of these kinds of cloud-based you know, networking and management tools? in the future as a result? Being able to access a printer from where wherever you are in the world and, and also monitor the printer or see that, that it needs attention or whatever, but having that power to always see what the status of your printer is or send start a print job, it's not no longer a luxury. It's a prerequisite for a printer to, to be able to use in, in, in a workflow. Of course, we do everything to speed up the, the time of printing, but it's a process where you have to melt plastic and get it back to solid again. So that always will take some time. So this is typically not something that you you rather want to start a print job before you head to the office rather than having to wait while you're in the office because chances are that then it's only finished when you already left. <laughs> That's why it's so important that the ability to start a job whenever you, you want that or had to, to be able to plan ahead and say, hey, I'm, I'm arriving in the office tomorrow at eight and that's when I need it. So let me uh, let me start a job uh, right now and then I can have it tomorrow when I arrive at the office. Those are really the, the things where, where things become really powerful because this overnight printing, that's what you actually want to do because then it doesn't matter that you have to wait because you're in, uh, you're in bed anyway. <laughs> 
I, I definitely take full advantage of that. Roche, thank you so much for joining Talking yeah. Additive today. You're welcome. Thank you. Our final guest for Talking Additive episode 30, wrapping out season three, is Tim Kuypers, a software engineer and 3D slicing software researcher who has contributed original research to the Ultimaker Cura project that will soon offer new strategies for slicing models that might benefit all users of Cura. Tim bridges from the earliest days of Ultimaker software engineering, contributing richly to the support tools that are used by millions of users every week, all the way to the Arachna library, components being developed to incorporate into upcoming releases of Ultimaker Cura. And you can download the Cura Arachne beta app right now if you want to explore these approaches today. What is your name and your role? My name is Tim Kuipers, and, and my role is a difficult question because my role is undefined. I started out as a software engineer, so working on the, the back end of Cura called Cura Engine. And that's where I've been working on for a very long time. And then somewhere around like the third or fourth year in being employed at uh, Automaker, I started a PhD at the Delft University of Technology, at the Faculty mm -hmm. of Industrial Design. And it was focused on the back end of Acura, but in the meantime, I've switched teams now. So I'm officially not part of the Cura team anymore, but I'm part of the print process and materials team. My focus is still on getting some algorithms into the Cura backend, but I'm now a lot more concerned with the mechanical behavior of prints and how the toolpath, like the geometry of the toolpaths or whatever aspects uh, you can code into the, the G-code, how that influences the mechanical properties of the print. And so I'm trying to implement systems where you can adjust the properties of the print by adjusting the toolpathing. It's a mouthful, but that's my role. How did you first encounter 3D printing and 3D software? 3D printing, I probably heard of it before, but the way I was introduced to Altmaker was when I was still a student and me and a couple of guys were living in this uh, student house. And one of these guys started working for Altmaker as like one of, of the first employees. I think you also did a, an interview with him. It's, uh, it's Menno, Menno van der Berg. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so he was uh, he was a friend and a housemate, and I was doing uh, studies in artificial intelligence, and I saw his printer, and I at some point designed some stuff and had it printed on his printer, and I was just like really into it. I was really into the fact that you can have something in the purely digital world, push a button, and then have that thing in the real world. It like bridges the gap between the digital and the physical reality or something. And that's what really drew me in. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, so then when, when my studies were finished, I immediately applied there and provided a plethora of reasons why this job was perfect for me. And, and then, yeah, a couple of weeks went by and, and then they called me to ask, why aren't you working here yet? So yeah, I started working there. <laughs> That's really funny. I, I I like what you're saying about the kind of role of, of the technology. What were you researching, thinking about doing that made working with Ultimaker a really exciting idea for you? So there were several factors. One of the most important factors was that Ultimaker is open source and that some of the printer designs are open source and that the software is open source, like the Cura software. And that's definitely a big part for me that I want to work on 
something bigger. I want to have something which which is bigger than just the company or just me, and and something I can collaborate on with others, and hopefully have something have have a more more lasting impact or something. So so that's definitely one one big plus. And then when I started there, it was like a, quite a decentralized structure in the company back in those days it was like r&d was just a whole bunch of people and not really any hierarchical structure uh, and so that meant we had a lot to say in what we think is important and so we could build our own vision for uh, the product we're making and yeah it was very inclusive and oh there were so many more arguments yeah, but it was a long <laughs> time ago man tell me more about the team when you joined like what kind of roles were people playing you, you made a case that you you've play a more ambiguous role right now but what about when you joined what what was the cura team like there was no cura team yeah yeah because you proceeded <laughs> yeah so actually so i was hired to work on a 3d scanner I wasn't hired to work on uh, 3D printing at all. But yeah, I don't know. I It's like, it it was already clear to the company that the scanner was not their core product. And yes. they, were, they, were, they had some other focus. So they asked me to, to work on Cura, on the support system, which was the first <laughs> thing I started implementing. And then basically the only other person working on Cura back then was David Bram. And he was the one who started the whole Cura project, basically. So it started like a couple of years before I started working there. David had some projects going on, like hobby projects with 3D printing. And he was using this really old school slicer called Skinforge. And the interface was so clunky and all of the algorithms were so slow because they were all set up in like the most generic way in in like the mo there was some weird plugin system which caused everything to work together really poorly and it meant like slicing could take longer than printing sometimes but this was it, it was really inefficient so yeah david set about to change that that interface i think he first made a new backend to do faster slicing and then he also did a new front end to match with it. And then, yeah, he gave the name up to a public vote. And then it was voted to be Cura because it cured all of the ailments of uh, of Skinforge. And so then when he uh, got that working, that really got people going. And, and the yeah, so then the founders of, uh, of Altmaker decided, yeah, we really need this, this guy in our team. And that's how we acquired Cura. It's still open source. Mm -hmm. so it's owned by everyone, you could say. But uh, yeah, the main repository is uh, is owned by Altmaker now. So yeah, at the start, it was just David and me and uh, some of the other, yeah, the other long-time Cura uh, developers that are still in the Cura team. They actually started later because they were still uh, working on a 3D scanner back in those days. So I've been working on Cura for a very long time. So the first thing I did was implement yeah, the support system. And I've been just growing on that. But it's I don't really think there's such a thing as a totally different way of slicing. There is actually, if you, if you consider the third dimension, like non-planar layers or there's some there's some degrees of freedom which allows you to have layers on on like a standard desktop 3d printer like a, an automaker printer to to have layers which are a bit 
bent or they are like uh, a bit more shallow in some regions than others and you could use that to a benefit to fit to your model uh, better but mm -hmm. Really, if you want to go non-planar, so that's the only way in which you could have a really, like a totally different paradigm of slicing. So when you have like a six-axis robot or six-axis machine, which has a lot more degrees of freedom. But for our machines, it doesn't make sense really to go to this different paradigm of slicing, in my opinion. Because, right. well, in, in 3D printing, there's like a, a gazillion parameters to take into account and if you're going to change the layer height then you're basically changing everything about the process and then you have to have dynamic control of every part of the process which is almost undoable so you want to have some degree of homogeneity and i think that's why planar mm. uh, slicing is the way to go you slice the 3D files to to get like the outlines of layers, and then within those outlines you fill uh, you fill those outlines with like walls, top bottom skin, and infill. And that's that's I think that's always going to be the basis. But what I set about to do in my PhD was seeing how we can add features to to the way of slicing and the way of printing. To, to enable printing objects which have different mechanical properties in different locations. So you can think of different infill densities in different locations. And uh, some other research I did was uh, like if you have a dual nozzle system like the Automaker printers, you can use like black and white filament and then use those to create grayscale images on the um, on the outside of the object. I, I have to go a step back to explain why I went there. So I'm working on algorithms to change the toolpaths in such a way that the user have so, has some control over the, the properties of the eventual print. But mm -hmm. when generating toolpaths, you have to take the machine limitations into account. You, you have to look really closely at, at what the nozzle does when it's printing. So for example, you always have to in, take into account that uh, you, you should generate toolpaths which are semi-continuous. If you have some toolpath, which consists of, for example, a dotted line, that's nearly impossible to print because near the beginning and the end of a printed line, it's always going to look a little bit different than uh, the way it's supposed to. So the, the starting up of extrusion is very hard to control very precisely. And other constraints you have to take into account. So for example, overhang. So when you put down one printed line on top of an already printed line but you print it a bit to the side then uh, it will then the printed line on top will bulge down a bit and the more you offset that printed line over the line below the more yet the less back pressure it has from the previous layer the more freedom it has to just to just bulge bulge down and so that was one of the effects that i used in the black and white grayscale printing paper i wrote so mm -hmm. you can imagine yeah. if you put down one white layer and a black layer on top but you let it extend just a little bit then it will bulge down and the white will be less visible so i've used that to uh, be able to tune how much of the black and how much of the white layers. Mm. So that's how I started to 
to focus on the constraints of additive manufacturing and within those constraints find some way to generate tool paths such that they satisfy some properties on the print. But then later I realized, what if we could reduce the constraints in the first place? One of the constraints is to do with, with the line width. So basically, if you have a 0.4 nozzle, then the golden standard is to also print with a 0.4 millimeter wide extrusion lines. But it doesn't need to be that way. It's actually possible with most systems to have some degree of variation in the line width. And so I set about to create an algorithm which can use that fact in order to get a better filling for thin shapes or like when the, when the outline of one layer contains some very narrow geometry, it will be very difficult to, to fill that geometry with an integer multiple of exactly the nozzle size because it, if, if your model is not exactly four times as wide as the nozzle, then it wouldn't fit like that. So if it's two and a half times, then what do you do? Mm. So in, the, in this latest uh, paper, which is also like a Cura Arachna version, which is currently being worked on by the Cura team, that, that can make that decision. If it's two and a half, I'm going to put two lines in there of 1.25, the nozzle size. Or I'm going to put three mm-hmm. uh, lines in there of, I don't know, you can divide yeah. that 2.5. With this framework, it could be possible to even say, okay, the, the outer line should be the nozzle size. And then in the middle, we're going to do one line of 0.5 millimeter wide. And the framework makes it possible to make like any decision, but it's difficult to decide mm. which user settings to give to a person because yeah, for any given model size, a setting will be too many settings, right? So that's impossible. There's different problems that are circumvented by this algorithm. And, and those problems showed up in different types of geometry. In a lot of models, it doesn't really matter. If you've got a very bulky print, like, like a, a ball or something, like something voluminous, right? Then then it doesn't really play a role. But maybe you're printing a prototype for some type of casing, for example. And then quite often, those types of designs are, are quite narrow. Then you might experience some type of problem, depending on the exact width of your of your model. It might be a problem that there's some empty space left in the in the interior of the print. And so you can imagine that if you've got a quite a thin print already, and then there's an empty space in the middle, then that makes it very flimsy because it mm. just consists of two layers which are barely connected to each other. That might actually lead to some quite ugly results in, in, your, in your prototype. But it could also be the other way around, that when the model is just a bit larger, then it will try to fit too many lines of the normal line width inside and without arachna then you would get some over extrusion which would show on the surface Mm. you could get some blemishes you could get some blobs here and there or just some general roughness over the whole area which would be quite ugly but but to me it was important to work this out because i was looking into microstructures. For example, there's these design tools which let you generate some type of repeating or semi-repeating microstructure. And then you could, by 
by designing the microstructure to be a little different in different locations. You can also get different properties in different locations. So that's how it ties into uh, my PhD mm -hmm. research. And so the reason I invented this was if you're uh, trying to print those very tiny uh, microstructures, then, then you want to be certain that it's printed well. And if you're going to print these microstructures, which are maybe varying in size throughout the different regions in a the print, mm -hmm. then you want to be certain that in the, in those different regions, it will all be printed. So you don't want right. that in some regions, there's uh, all these holes left. And in other regions, there's this over-extrusion because that way you can't really control yeah, the properties of the final print with the geometry of those microstructures anymore. So in order to, to get microstructures with a spatial gradient in their geometry to print properly, we need to have this type of, of algorithm. Well, it's kind of niche, but so uh, for most people, it's more related to thin prints like casings or tools, uh, stuff like that. What I find interesting that the 3D printing has this huge uh, opportunity, has this huge potential to make all these new types of geometries possible, which weren't possible with other production techniques. And mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting, and that's why also why it's kind of at the it's the frontier of science, right? It's yeah, we're trying to make things possible that that weren't possible before. To me, this was something that was obvious that it needed to be done. And that's why I did it. Because I thought this is just necessary and we need this. I implemented the library because I thought this is something that needs to be done and then gave it to the team and convinced people that, yeah, this is good for a lot of things. And everybody in the company was quite enthusiastic about it. Yeah, since Corona, I've, I've just been working on my next subject. And uh, so the Cura team has taken it over and taken the responsibility of getting it really integrated into Cura, looking at all the details of how it could interact with all of the other features of Cura. I, I guess that's how I look at it. I think a lot of us who have been in desktop 3D printing for a long time are excited about this, if anything, because you know there there have always been these effects of 3D printing in a particular orientation, etc., that had to do with some of these ways that the slicer would just would solve things without much care for what the content was. And this feels like this is a step in a better direction already. Some of these parts uh, of, of the types you were describing, particularly like jigs and fixtures, they're going to just benefit from some of these line strategies. So arachne is, is a lot about automatically choosing the right thing, like automatically depending on the actual shape of your 3D model, choose how it will be printed. And that's kind of arachne and that's all automatic. But the other mm -hmm. types of research I've done, so the, yeah, the black and white grayscale printing, the, the variable density, those are all kind of things for the, yeah, the advanced engineer, which, which has a lot more understanding than the person just hitting print and accepting that it will come out quite close to what he right. had designed it. And so I guess some of my work is in that sense a bit thankless, but in other respects, I'm, I'm getting a lot of respect from some niche people who are trying to do something very specific or trying to expand the possibilities of, of, of 3D printing or yeah, stuff like that. Really use the 3D printer to its fullest capacity. And so I, I think from those people, I would uh, 
have a lot of indirect thanks. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, because you're providing tools that would otherwise be probably difficult to create. They won't necessarily have access to the ways of doing this kind of stuff. And so those who have those specific kind of problems can draw on your research and solutions. So Tim, thank you very much for joining for the interview for talking at it today. I uh, really enjoyed chatting with you and, and hearing about your research and, uh, and yeah. some of your experiences at Ultimaker over the years. Yeah. Thank you again to Aryan, Roger, and Tim for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our 30th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, the future of Ultimaker, Cura, and beyond. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. Coming up next Tuesday, catch our latest in a series of bi-weekly Ultimaker Turns 10 mini-episodes. Talking Additive goes on partial hiatus now until later this fall, while our ahem, host takes a holiday, and then the team resumes producing compelling, information-rich episodes for Season 4. In the meantime, continue to enjoy the Ultimaker Turns 10 bonus mini-episode series that will continue to run until we count off all 10 episodes. The best way to keep updated for those bonus episodes is to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Aryan, Roger, Tim, Jane, Ruben, Aldo, David Braum, and the Ultimaker Cura team and community contributors and users of Cura Worldwide for their help with this and the previous episode. Our series producer is Hanna Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.